Welcome to the Simulated Universe, where we explore the boundaries between science and science fiction. My name is Riz Verk, and I'm your host, and this is the first episode of this new podcast where we're going to explore lots of different concepts related to the simulation hypothesis, quantum physics, uh, computer science, AI, artificial intelligence, consciousness, and basically a lot of fringe ideas and theories. Some of you may know me from my book, The Simulation Hypothesis, an MIT computer scientist, shows why AI, quantum physics, and Eastern mystics all agree we are inside a video game. Speaking of video games, we're going to be talking about those as well as a lot of science fiction. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about one of the most famous science fiction writers of all time, Philip K. Dick. You may know him from the various movies and TV shows um, that have been adaptations of his work. Probably the most famous being Blade Runner, uh, which was based on Dick's novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Some of you may have seen The Man in the High Castle recently, which is a really popular TV series uh, on Amazon, which was based off of his novel from the 1960s. Uh, that one in particular has a real significance when it comes to the idea of the simulation hypothesis. Uh, we'll be interviewing Tessa B. Dick, uh, who was married to Phil. Uh, you know, his, she was his fifth wife, I think, uh, or his last wife, and she has a lot of interesting things to say uh, about his beliefs and where some of his ideas came from. Um, you know, I've said that this idea of multiple timelines and simulation are interrelated and uh, Philip said that he wrote The Man in the High Castle because he remembered a timeline where Germany and Japan won World War II uh, and he remembered that in parallel to remembering our timeline where of course the Allies won the Second World War. Uh, so what gives? How could he remember both of those? Well according to Tessa as you'll hear in the interview, you know, he believes that there are people outside of the simulation who are able to go back and change the timeline. So they're able to tweak certain parameters, kind of rewind it, almost like a movie, and then rerun it with the new parameters. Uh, and that's how we ended up in this timeline. And she mentions a little bit about JFK as well. Um, so this is an interview I did uh, while I was researching my book. Uh, so I apologize for the audio quality. It was wasn't necessarily, um, uh, you know, going to be a podcast. Although, uh, you know, I had her permission to to turn it into a podcast. So uh, I've edited it a little bit, but you know, we touch on all kinds of topics ranging from the Matrix. What would Phil think of the Matrix if he saw that movie? And she has a pretty good answer for that. You, you'll not want to miss that if you're a science fiction fan. Uh, ranging to some of his really unexplainable experiences like precognitive dreams uh, and where many of his ideas germinated from. So uh, without further ado, let's jump in uh, and you'll hear my interview with Tessa B. Dick. She's the author of two books uh, about her late husband, uh, which include Conversations with Philip K. Dick and Blade Runner creator Philip K. Dick. I highly recommend both of those if you're a fan of uh, his science fiction uh, and you're, or you'd like to just know more about this very intriguing figure 
uh, who unfortunately passed away in, in the 1980s, um, there was a uh, famous line from a New York Times article not that long ago uh, where the uh, reporter said, you know, we live in Philip K. Dick's world. Or actually she said, it's Philip K. Dick's world. The rest of us just live in it. Uh, and I think you know, that's being borne out. Many of his ideas, which were considered really strange back in the 60s and 50s when he was doing most of his writing and even in the 70s, you know, over time are becoming more and more accepted and he may have had a better grasp of what the future might hold than many other science fiction writers that we know about. So let's jump in and uh, listen to my interview with uh, Tessa B. Dick. Hi, Tessa. Okay, we're uh, recording. As I said, this was originally for my book, uh, which is going to be about the simulation hypothesis, which is the idea that we're living inside a virtual reality. But, uh, you know, we may go ahead and broadcast it as a podcast as well. Okay, great. Now, where are you located? I'm in Crestline. It's a little mountain community just below Lake Arrowhead. When I got involved with Radio Free Album, uh, they took us on a Philip K. Dick walking tour in Berkeley. <laughs> yeah. and, and so we saw all these different uh, places where he lived in Berkeley. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, actually, he really what had an attachment to Northern California. He spent much of his life there. Now, you met him in, in Southern California, right? Right. And uh, uh, where did you guys live when, when you were married? Well, first, well, always in Fullerton, first in apartments and then in a rented house. And then when he left, he moved to Santa Ana, which is basically a stone's throw away from Fullerton. Got it. And he needed to be close to um, shops and banks and things like that because he didn't like to drive. But did he, did he, he had a driver's license, but he just didn't like to drive? Right. So he wanted to be in walking distance. And sometimes he had trouble leaving his house at all. He, he had a phobia. Right, I read about that. Is it sort of agoraphobia where you just didn't want to be outside around a lot of people? Well, both, but I, I don't know. In a small group or one-on-one, -on -one, he was okay, but he didn't do well in crowds. Right, makes sense. Well, you know, before we jump into the whole Matrix thing, I, I thought I'd tell you a story that I, I heard from another science fiction writer. I don't know if you know her, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. Well, she, I never met her, but uh, you know, Phil knew her, and they wrote letters back and forth. It, yeah, so I, I you know, met her a few years ago because I was involved in adapting one of her books into a movie, and... Uh, you know, she mentioned that she had gone to the, the same high school uh, with Phil. And she said that when she realized that originally, this must be before they had written letters to each other, she asked all her friends if they remembered him because they were only like one year apart in the high school in Berkeley. Yeah. And she said that nobody could remember him. And so they went back 
to the yearbook and looked for his picture, and they couldn't find it. And she said it felt like a Philip K. Dick novel <laughs> where somebody had gone back and kind of removed him from, <laughs> you know, the records or something. Yeah, even in high school, he was very shy and probably just didn't show up for the picture, the school picture. <laughs> yep, that makes sense. Great. Well, you know, I, I heard you on uh, on Coast to Coast the other day with Jimmy Church. It's a show that, you know, I've been on as well. Yeah. Um, and Jimmy's a good friend. And, you know, uh, you mentioned during that time that his personal view about reality was closer to the movie The Matrix, you know, than perhaps even some of his, his own books. And so, you know, I thought I'd, I'd ask you a bit about that because that's very much what, what my book is about. Um, yeah. Well, have you heard... Uh, at least clips from the speech he gave in Metz, France, in 77. You know, I think I heard one clip from it, or, or a part of it, but not the whole thing. The whole thing used to be online in little 10-minute segments, but I can't find that anymore. All I find is these clips that have been edited and spliced together. So... <laughs> And that was at where at at uh, in seventy seven and uh, yeah he was invited to be guest of honor at a science fiction convention in Metz and he actually went with his friend Joan and gave a speech and uh, right afterward Joan dumped him because she thought he was nuts <laughs> really after but she no. heard that speech. Was that the speech? I have one quote from a speech of his, which I thought was might have been that one, where he said that in reality was like a computer simulation and you could go back and change a variable. And it yeah, we, we are living in a computer-programmed reality, and the only clue we have to it is when something is changed. Sorry, my alarm is telling me to be ready for your call. The only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed and an alternative reality branches off. But, yeah, that's exactly the quote that that I had. So I I don't think I've heard the the rest of that speech, but I will definitely, you know, go. Okay, I'm going to pause the interview here uh, and going to play a clip from... Philip K. Dick's 1977 speech at Metz, France, at a science fiction convention that Tessa was talking about. Uh, you can find the clip uh, on YouTube. Unfortunately, as she said, the whole speech isn't there, but there are pieces of it um, in various places on the Internet. So I took out the pieces that are most relevant to our discussion of The Matrix, and you can listen to that now. The subject of this speech is a topic which has been discovered recently and which may not exist at all. I may be talking about something that does not exist, therefore I'm free to say everything or nothing. I, in my stories and novels, often write about counterfeit worlds, 
semi-real worlds, as well as deranged private worlds, inhabited often by just one person, while meantime the other characters either remain in their own worlds throughout or are somehow drawn into one of the peculiar ones. This theme occurs in the corpus of my 27 years of writing. At no time did I have a theoretical or conscious explanation for my preoccupation with these pluriform pseudo-worlds, but now I think I understand. What I was sensing was the manifold of partially actualized realities lying tangent to what evidently is the most actualized one, the one which the majority of us by consensus gentium agree on. I wrote out these dreams in novel after novel, story after story, to name two in which this prior ugly present obtained most clearly. I cite The Man in the High Castle and my 1974 novel about the U.S. as a police state called Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. I'm going to be very candid with you. I wrote both novels based on fragmentary residual memories of such a horrid slave state world. People claim to remember past lives. I claim to remember a different, very different present life. I know of no one who has ever made this claim before, but I rather suspect that my experience is not unique. What perhaps is unique is the fact that I am willing to talk about it. We are living in a computer programmed reality and the only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed and some alteration in our reality occurs. We would have the overwhelming impression that we were reliving the present, deja vu, perhaps in precisely the same way, hearing the same words, saying the same words, I submit that these impressions are valid and significant. And I will even say this, such an impression is a clue that at some past time point, a variable was changed reprogrammed as it were, and that because of this an alternative world branched off. Well, there you have it, straight from Philip K. Dick himself. There's a ton to unpack just in that little clip from the Met speech. But let's get back to my interview with Tessa. Uh, that's what she was referring to. Cool, look forward. But I know one of the stories you tell in your books, which I read recently, was that you know, when he wrote the adjustment team, it was because he thought things were changing. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. He had, he told the story differently, different times, but basically uh, he came home from the movies uh, with his wife, Cleo, and reached for the light switch. And it wasn't there. It was actually a chain hanging down from a light in the ceiling. <clears throat> but he didn't remember having that kind of light. He thought he had a switch on the wall. And mm. rather than thinking he'd made a mistake, he concluded that someone had changed everything while they were gone. <laughs> and that's what the adjustment team is about. Yeah, so it was a different kind of light switch. I always thought the story was the light switch was in the wrong place, but uh, so it, it was a chain rather than a switch. And he came right. Back. So that would make it even more obvious that something is different. 
Yeah, in other versions, he would say he walked into the bathroom and tried to pull the chain, but he had a light switch on the wall. But something happened where, you know, the light switch wasn't where he thought it was and not even the same kind of switch. Mm. Well, and now, did anything like that happen when, when you were with him? Well, not a light switch, but... um we would find things moved around when we came home, but uh, Phil figured out that one of the girls we knew who used to live in that apartment had kept her key, and she was just coming in and reading books and things like that while we were gone. <laughs> right. So that one had a less uh, less esoteric explanation, I guess. Yeah. Right. But... Um, eventually our house was such a mess that we couldn't tell if things had been moved or changed, but, um, that's because of Phil working at home and demanding my complete attention. The second time the galleys for a scanner darkly came back, I refused to look at them. I was sick of it. <laughs> Really? And how long had he been working on uh, Scanner Darkly? Well, he actually wrote the first draft in 73, 72 and 3, you know, end of the year, beginning of the year. It was published in either 76 or 77. Okay, so a few years later, yeah. Yeah, well, he had to keep... um, Researching the split brain, he had, he was always reading, uh, the, you know, the lay person's version of a science journal like Psychology Today. And he had read about epileptics having, um, when they're very severe, they'd have the corpus callosum cut. So the two sides of your brain, the left and the right, could not communicate with each other because in their seizures, something that started small in one part of the brain would cross over and affect the whole brain, and the seizure would be really dangerous, life-threatening even. And he he also read about how if they... Um, split your field of vision so that only your right brain sees an object. Your left brain can't come up with the word for what that object is because they're not communicating. Right. So you're seeing it and you're recognizing it, but you can't verbalize it. Yeah, the words uh, Since then, they found that it isn't quite that clear-cut with the separation of uh, abilities in your brain from one side to the other. But basically, um, he thought that this drug that he called substance death could split your brain and make you actually two different people with different habits, mannerisms, and personalities. Mm. 
And was that uh, now? You know, I, ha- I saw the Scanner Darkly movie a while back. Cool. Well, you know, one thing you mentioned in, in your books was that with with the man in the high castle that you know Phil thought that he had actually remembered different realities, whether it was JFK not being assassinated, where the Nazis actually winning the war, and he felt like he, they went back. Sorry. No worries. Every morning I have to cough. Um, I could mute my phone, but it's decided to save energy by going black when when I'm talking. Yep, no worries. So I was just asking about, uh, you know, if uh, Philip, he he said uh, that he remembered different histories. he, He did. And apparently, if Kennedy had lived, then um, LBJ would have been out on his uh, keister. (laughs) (laughs) We would not have had Nixon. We'd probably have Bobby Kennedy. But for some reason, that timeline seemed to lead to a nuclear war. So getting back to the adjustment, Kimi thought maybe someone had changed it. Oh. But wow. in um, one of his visions, some people who claimed to be from our future, and he was awake. He wasn't sleeping and dreaming. Uh, okay. Um I could see shadows. I didn't, you know, I kind of saw them, but kind of didn't. And maybe I was just, uh, you know, influenced by Phil. But these people who said they were from the future claimed that they had tried and tried to stop the JFK assassination. But every time they stopped one plot against him, some other plot succeeded. So they gave up because they figured it was kind of a hard event, one you couldn't change. Mm. Oh, wow. So this is what the the people from the future, do they look like humans? Uh, Well, Phil said uh, they look human, but their heads were were odd, kind of like um, that famous bust of Nefertiti with the large skull going back kind of like what they call cone heads. Yep. Yep, I see um, Very small nose and mouth, but big eyes. But basically normal humans, not any type of alien that we've heard described. Hmm. And they also told him that they were interfering with his with our time because that their time, which is our future, was so awful. Mm. They, um, through war and just plain pollution, they wrecked the planet, and they had this eugenics program to, you know, supposedly make the human race better, and they ended up unable to uh, procreate. They couldn't bear children. Mm. So, you know, so 
the human race was dying off. Okay. Wow. And that's why they were going back to try to change history? Yep. <laughs> now, you know, that sounds a lot like some of, some of the people who talk about alien abductions have mentioned something like that where you know, the aliens can't reproduce and they were coming to get DNA that they needed for some reason. But, it, you know, there's a lot of speculation, but that's interesting. I didn't realize that was part of uh, what, what they had told uh, Phil as well. Yeah. I have written about it at least, you know, in passing, but, you know, with everything that's happening now, it's kind of likely that we'll go down that road. <laughs> right, yeah, it's kind of scary, actually. And wow. my, my working hypothesis about aliens and UFOs is that our ancient ancestors colonized other planets, and they're coming back. Mm. Right, so tying to the ancient, almost the ancient alien. Well, I can't watch ancient aliens. I, <laughs> I watch that sort of thing, but that particular show just annoys me. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's got its fans and detractors, I guess. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to detract from it because I haven't watched enough to form an opinion. But, um, yeah, as far as aliens go, I've never seen a gray or a green or a mantis. If any of the non-human ones are actually real, I would go with the reptilians. Yeah. Yeah. They're what real about Doctor Who? <laughs> That's true. You have the you have the Daleks and all the other guys in Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, the Daleks oh. turn out to be human mostly, and uh, but there's this one amazing character who who's a, a lizard. Right. Yeah, I think I saw that episode recently. Uh, she's been on. She's been on a few. I can't watch the new episodes because I don't live in the right country to watch and I'm not I can't afford BBC TV <laughs> oh you don't have BBC America for the new season yeah it's, it's a little different it's pretty good though I, I like to yeah, Jodie yeah. Whittaker is the first female doctor <laughs> yeah well yeah. one day it'll get on Netflix or YouTube anyway yeah. this um Female reptilian alien is always helping Doctor Who. Oh, okay, I don't know if I've seen that one. I'll have to check that out. Um, cool. Well, now, what about getting back to the the alternate history? I mean, would you say that Phil said he remembered that alternate history, or was it just from these these kind well, of people from the future telling him? Well, that was not what he remembered. Okay. What he remembered was. You know, before he ever saw these people. Yeah. Something was there. I know I saw something, but you could see right through them as if they were a hologram. Mm. And I didn't hear them say anything. And Phil thought it was, um, you know, a, a 
like mind reading. They were projecting their thoughts to him, not actually speaking. Mm. Right. But you said before he saw them, he had also remembered yeah, alternate he, history. He was when I even when I first met him, and um, a lot of uh, people from Cal State Fullerton would stop by for the coffee and conversation. <clears throat> he was always talking about how the Nazis really won World War Two. Germany lost, but the Nazis won. They just picked up and moved. Because Germany didn't have a lot of natural resources. And guess who does? The United States. Yep, we have plenty here. <laughs> and a lot of them went to uh, um, South America, too. Yeah. Natural so resources. Was that with also with uh, Operation Paperclip and the Nazi scientists coming here? That was a small part of it. There's much more to it than that, but that's the public face of it. Okay. Oh wow. Now, is this was this something that he remembered, or was it from his research? Well, I think it was a combination. But he he remembered a world in which the Nazis actually openly ruled the United States. Wow. And he never wrote the sequel to The Man in the High Castle, which, you know, it focused on the uh, Japanese occupation of the West Coast. But he just, he had read enough of the actual documents in the library to know that he just couldn't stomach uh, describing the Nazis. Hmm. <laughs> right. right. And at, in actuality, the Japanese were at least as uh, brutal, but he didn't see it that way. Hmm. Interesting. Now, did you, in the sequel, was there this element of kind of going between the worlds? I mean, the sequel that wasn't written. Oh. <laughs> of flipping back and forth between our reality and the one where the Nazis won, or is that something they just came up with for the TV, for the TV show? Uh, well, he had um, I, I think it was I always blank on the first name Ovinson. I think it's Hawthorne Ovinson. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You know, the author of this book that was capable of breaking through the veil and showing people the real world where the Nazis lost. Yep. And in a sense, that's true. I mean, what's the first thing a dictator does? Burns all the books and kills all the scholars. Kind of reminds me of Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. Bradbury's book. Sure. Oh. Now, did did Phil ever start on the sequel, or he just sort of had it in his head and and didn't quite actually write it? I don't think he ever wrote, wrote anything down, but he did talk about it a lot, and he continued reading 
you know, there was no internet then, and <laughs> it was harder to get information, but he read what he could find, and um, he was convinced that somehow these two realities were overlapping, one in which the Axis won and one in which the uh, Allies won. For, for some reason, it wasn't quite set in concrete. Hmm. And he felt like they were overlapping even in our reality or today, or I guess back then in the 70s. Right. And uh, <laughs> what do we have? We have all these intelligence agencies and uh, crazy laws and homeland security and the NSA actually records all phone calls and they claim, well, they, they don't listen to them. They just have this computer decide if they should listen. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yep. Probably listening right now. <laughs> And now I have to get new ID, or I can't get on a plane. Yeah, that's coming up, I think, next year, right, in California and other places? Yeah, California kept getting um, more time extensions, and there are no more extensions. Yeah, I have a California driver's license as well, so I'm going to have to do the same thing. But I think we have till next year, right? Right. People are already lining up for hours at the DMV for their new license, their real ID. And I've looked into it, and I think I'd be better off just getting a passport. It costs more, but the lines are shorter. You just go to the post office. Yeah, you can you can get the passport through the mail. So. Well, the problem is um, I have to get a notarized statement of who I am because my name is not the same as on my birth certificate. That's my maiden name. And I have a copy of my birth certificate, but it's so old that it's falling apart. So I have to get a, what it is, is I have to get a notarized statement in order to get my birth certificate because <clears throat> all of a sudden you can't just ask for a birth certificate. You have to prove who you are and why you need it. Yep. Yep. Well, you know, it's true. <laughs> yeah. Since I was born in. Los Angeles County, it's $75 if it hasn't gone up this year. <laughs> right. Um, well, well, you know, I was born in Pakistan, but it's even harder to come by birth certificates back in those days. <laughs> wow. That was back in 69. So, although, uh, Philip, you said his birthday was, his birthday was December 16th, right? Yep. Yeah. So, my birthday was on December 17th, and, uh, Recently, I found out Arthur C. Clarke's birthday was also on December 16th, on the uh -huh. same day. So it must be a auspicious day for science fiction writers. 
Yeah, now I have a cat trying to get into my coffee. I gave you fresh water, Blackie, and I fed you too. Oh. Oh, cat. So how many cats do you have? I'm down to one and a half. One and a half? (laughs) Well, one of them is feral. Okay. She does come inside when it's cold, and she eats in my house, but I can't get near her. Wow. Well, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about was the the Roman Empire. Like, that was one aspect of his um, his vision that I didn't quite understand, and that somehow we're still in the Roman Empire days as outside the simulation. Is that what his idea was, or maybe you can explain that a little bit. Yeah. Basically, I would go back um, further in history, but Phil <clears throat> focused on the Roman Empire. And as a metaphor, all the empires of history are the same empire. Roman, uh, let's see, see if I can put them in order, time-wise. Okay, we had the Persian and the Greeks and the Romans and then the uh, Holy Roman Empire, which was basically uh, German, although Hmm. it uh, Charlemagne actually had his capital in France. Uh, the national boundaries were not really settled back then. And, uh, you know, in modern times, of course, you can look at the British Empire, and now uh, people are saying that the United States is an empire. Right. We had a Russian empire, uh which morphed into the Soviet Union. Yep. And even though it fell apart, Russia is pretty much grabbing everything. But um, basically, he focused on Rome because he had some kind of connection to early Christian times. And we would be walking down the alley between uh, oh someone's calling me nobody calls me it doesn't say a number or a name so I'm not answering okay it was it seemed safer to walk down the alley than on the sidewalk by the street where there was a lot of traffic so you know, on both sides, we'd see the back windows of apartments, uh, two-story apartment buildings, and Phil would see them covered with iron bars to keep people in, kind of like security bars, but they didn't actually have those. He was just seeing them and okay. remarking that... People actually pay for their own imprisonment in these little boxes. <laughs> and, um, 
Yeah, they they get to go to work and school and so forth, but basically they're imprisoned in these apartments, which keep people apart. Mm. And that that in a real sense they are prisoners. Mm-hmm. And of course, Phil thought he actually had been an early Christian in Rome named Thomas and that he was somehow in in a psychic connection with his past life. So huh. So is that where he got the connection to, to Rome was through that psychic connection or or was it more of a metaphor or did he actually believe that the Roman Empire was still kind of out there outside that virtual reality, if you will? Well, it it depended on when you asked him. (laughs) Okay. It's kind of like, I'll believe in the impossible on Tuesday, but but not on Wednesday or Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Oh, so there were times when he felt like it was a literal, like, Roman Empire that was still in existence. And other times it was more of a metaphor, you say. Yes. And um, he had all, well, for a long time he had focused on religion because of his friendship with Bishop Pike in the early 60s. He he went to church because his third wife, Anne, made him go. (laughs) And... um, and through the church, he met Bishop Pike, and at the time, Pike's secretary, Marin Bergman, was Nancy's stepmother. Hmm. And that's how he met Nancy, his fourth wife. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I didn't realize that. <laughs> Is it Bergman or Bergson? I think it's Marin Bergson. Okay. Anyway, he um, was Pike's personal secretary for several years. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of bed hopping back then, I guess. <laughs> was that in the 60s? or? Yeah, uh, early 60s, so it wasn't really socially acceptable, but... Right. But it was through Bishop Pike that he started to investigate the religious side. Was that where he thought the the connection to his self? And Bishop Pike was a heretic, kind of an Arian, after Arius, A-R-I-U-S, an early uh, Christian figure who insisted that Jesus was not God. And, of course, uh, his view was not accepted at the Nicene Council. Hmm. And that's how Pike died. He went to Israel to find evidence that Jesus was didn't die on the cross and died in the desert there hmm. under mysterious and rather suspicious circumstances. Bishop Pike did. Yeah. Yeah. Really, 
hit so hard when he learned about it. He was certain that someone had murdered him. Yeah, possibly his second wife, Diane Kennedy. I don't know enough to form an opinion, but that's what Phil thought. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, okay. Phil, Phil was focused on the idea that there are two gods, a good god and a bad god, and that the this world is ruled by the bad god, but the good mm-hmm. god will take over someday. And it sounds a lot like Gnosticism, but there's a basic difference. The Gnostics believe that they can uh, achieve salvation through knowledge. But Phil believes that you achieve salvation through the source of that knowledge. In other words, through God in the form of a Savior who walks on the earth, which, of course, would be Jesus. Right. So Phil was... Sounds like very much in the Christian, at least uh, tradition, going back to you know where it came from and what it meant. Right, and he saw the empire as a force that suppresses Christians. See, isn't that happening today? <laughs> Make a cake or go to jail. Well, personally, I would make the cake because um, the church is supposed to accept everybody as they are. You know, we're all sinners, so, you know, you can't say that someone else's sin is any worse than yours. We're all doomed. (laughs) Right. Makes sense. Yeah. Coming back to this idea of um, this alternate history, you mentioned in your book about Billy the Kid and the website yeah. and, and how it was different. Could you maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I've followed up on it here and there. Is there's an official site apparently run by his descendants. Mm-hmm. And I first heard about it on Art Bell. One of the callers said he was in a college course on American history and that his textbook said that Billy the Kid was shot and killed during an attempt to break out of jail. But he distinctly remembered that Billy the Kid was shot in the back while riding on the trail. Hmm. Same guy did it in both stories. And I keep forgetting this. Pat Garrett, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I looked it up. And the website said he was killed during an attempt to break out of jail. Well, a few years later, I mentioned that to my brother, and he said, no, he was shot on the trail in the back while riding away by Pat Garrett. So I checked the website again, and this time it said that Billy the Kid was shot at a friend's house by Pat Garrett, but 
he was at a friend's house while um, running away from the law. Well, that that isn't Billy the Kid. That would be Jesse James. That's how Jesse James died. But it said Billy the Kid died that way. So a few years after that, I looked again, and the website didn't say how he died. So what do you think is happening there? Well, either somebody's changing the actual history or they're just changing uh, the written history. Yeah. And, and so do, do you believe, as, as, as perhaps Phil did, that, that we're living in some kind of illusion reality and that people can change different parts of the past? Or loop back. Like what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I kind of think that time is not what we think it is. Yeah, now I just went to the website again, and it says, Late at night in Fort Sumner, the kid is shot and killed by Sheriff Garrett at Pete Maxwell's house. But they've, okay. Well, they've always told us he was shot in the back while riding the trail. I remember my, you know, education. <laughs> right. So these could be either little changes, like, like. Well, it could be they're just changing the books, yeah. or it could be someone's changing the actual history. Who knows? And it's. It doesn't seem important to me as to how and when and where he was killed. He was still dead. <laughs> well, it's kind of like the JFK assassination, right? It, it seems like there may be different versions, but it seems like it happened in more um, than one timeline. Yeah, as far as JFK goes, I don't know who actually pulled the trigger. But I do know that all the suspects were in on it. Hmm. There was an attempt in Florida. There were two attempts in Chicago. And there were probably more attempts that we don't know about. So we don't know who succeeded. We don't know who pulled the trigger. But we do know that they all tried to kill him. Hmm. Well, and, and perhaps according to what you said, the future people told Phil, in different timelines, it was some other people who assassinated him, right? Right. It, so maybe it, they put a stop to the the attempt in Florida by changing the route of the parade. Maybe they stopped the attempts in Chicago in other ways, but they succeeded in Dallas. Right. And, uh, oh, I'm terrible at names. The, uh, former CIA guy who told his son on his deathbed that he did it. Uh, yeah, I don't remember who that was offhand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got a. And a deathbed confession, you know? But yeah. deathbed confessions aren't necessarily true. Hmm. 
But now, so you say in your book, I think at the end of the first chapter. Which you know, book do you have, by the way? Uh, so I got uh, the Blade Runner uh, yeah. book and the Conversations with. Uh, okay. With uh, those are the two oh. that I have. <laughs> There's another one called Philip K. Dick, Remembering Firebright. It's an earlier book. Okay. I haven't uh, read that one, but I will definitely get it and, and mention it to people as well. Um, I'm in a mode where I write things down so I don't have to remember them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to get them down and you can share them with the rest of us, yeah. I came across my earliest memoir. Uh, I wrote it around 1990. So, you know, I wrote it on a typewriter. <laughs> so I might um, type it into the computer and publish that one, too. Yeah, well, so that was from 1990, probably had you know, more recent memories of things as well. So, yeah, that would be great if there's anything I can do to help you on that front. Uh, you know, well, I'd be happy to. <laughs> someday I'll have a real publisher, but meanwhile, there's Amazon. Well, I do have two real publishers in uh, Italy. They actually paid a translator to translate a couple of my books into Italian. Nice. That's great. That's great. Well, speaking of, of books, I know, I know you did a review. Howard of Hunt. Well, oh, the magic of Google. Howard Hunt made the deathbed confession about assassinating JFK. Okay. He oh, turned up in the Watergate investigation, didn't he? I've heard that name, yeah. Kind of reminds me of that character from the X-Files. <laughs> I don't know if you watched the X-Files. They have the, 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 the cancer man, the cigarette smoking oh, guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, deep throat, and then there's cancer man who was... In, in the X-Files mythology, he was the one who shot JFK. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, anyway, and then... You know, I think... Um, Trump is making the same mistake Nixon did. Nixon didn't order the Watergate burglary, but he did try to cover it up. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Seems like Trump is definitely covering something up, but <laughs> we don't know what. Yeah, well, I, I think it's obvious that he has connections. You, you don't build hotels and casinos in New York and New Jersey unless you're connected. Yep. Makes sense. Well, you know, staying off, staying off of politics, but going back to well, TV shows, you, you, what did you think of the new Man in the High Council series? Have you watched it all, like all, all the seasons? I watched the first episode. Okay. It was very good. And then I started to watch the second episode, but there's so much brutality that I just can't watch it. I, I don't mean that it isn't a good show. It's just not for me. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I watch murder mysteries. 
I even uh-huh. watched the first season of the Frankenstein Chronicles, but I couldn't <laughs> get through Man in the High Castle. Wow. Okay. And this is because of the brutality of the, the Nazis or the Japanese? I think both, but mainly the Nazis. Hmm. I, so, I do get the idea that, well, since I actually read the book, yeah. Julia, or is it Juliana? Juliana yeah, Juliana Crane. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, hooked up with the wrong guy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, what did you think of the fact they made, uh, they used films in, in the show showing the alternate reality? I thought that uh, was I, quite clever. Eh? Yeah, I think that's a good thing. Um, kind of newsreels basically what it is that's much more convincing than a book yeah so do you think Phil would have approved of that that kind of a change oh I I think so you know he he liked uh, to tell a story he wasn't impressed by special effects but to you know use a um documentary footage showing what the book, The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, would describe is just a, I think it's brilliant. I think he would have thought so, too. Yeah. You just can't really show a film when you're writing a book. (laughs) Right. Yeah, and it would be a bit awkward the other way if you're watching a TV show and there's a book. At least with the newsreels, you can kind of see the alternate reality. Right. Cool. Well, coming back to this idea of virtual reality, I mean, do you you believe, it sounds like Phil believes we're in a computer simulation of some kind that can be manipulated. You know, do you believe that as well? Sometimes it appears to be so. I, um, I try not to make it about myself, but (laughs) I've noticed things changing. I like Billy the Kid, and uh, no, it doesn't affect my life, but it's it's strange. Yeah, definitely. And so, who did Phil think was outside the simulation, changing it? I mean, is it people from the future? Is it aliens? Is it God, angels? (laughs) I think he would have gone with God and. Angels is such a um, an inadequate word to describe uh, God's um, entourage. <laughs> Angel just means messenger, and that's a rather lowly position in heaven. You know, there's also seraphim, cherubim, sons of God, and so forth. But some kind of spiritual beings just might be meddling with God's creation. I'm trying to make my computer behave. It's an old, old laptop that has seen better days, but I got it for a hundred bucks. Oh, really? A refurbished <laughs> Dell. Okay, okay. 
Well, we'll tell you what, Tessa. You know, I appreciate you taking the time. If if uh, if you want to send me your address, you know, I can have a new laptop sent to you to make it easier for you. <laughs> How about that? That'll be my that'll be my gift and appreciation for you taking the time. You really want to do that? Sure. Yeah, I've done it before for people that have helped me out. That uh, that I feel, especially when they had the old computers, because these days you really need to, you know, be able to get online and, and share information. And I'd love to see more of your work. So I'd be more than happy to do that. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, do you prefer a Mac or a PC or Windows? I've never had a Mac. Um, I'll tell you what, after, really, the, after the call, think about it and just Facebook uh, message I'm me. I'm used to PC. Any other questions? I mean, yeah, we really so, delved into the matrix. Yeah, so that's really what I want to delve into now. Is uh, So what what are your thoughts or Phil's thoughts on how the matrix worked and how did he come up with that idea? And, you know, I guess he didn't live to see the, the movie, but, you know, maybe you could comment a bit on you know, that as well. Uh, the uh, brothers who um, wrote and produced The Matrix said they were inspired by Phil's work. I think they were more than just inspired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he uh, talked about that literally, right? So he thought that was what was going on. Yeah. And, you know, there's the red pill and the blue pill. You can decide whether to escape The Matrix it's very interesting that they're hooked up to all these electrodes. It's very much like several of Phil's books in which people are colonizing other worlds and they have to do something to relieve the boredom. Oh. Now, which which books would you say of his are closest to that? Well, I'm not sure. I think... It's Martian Time Slip where they have the Ken and Barbie dolls. Perky Pat and what's his name? And they take a pill to enter that world. Ah, okay. And entertain themselves for a while. And then there's, of course... Do androids dream of electric sheep in which they have this Mercer box, this empathy box? Yep. And they join Mercer in walking up the hill, which is straight out of the New Testament. Jesus walking up the hill to be crucified. Um, yep. Yep. In most of his books, there's some kind of illusory world that people escape from just through uh, some random event that knocks them out of their comfort zone. And I have trouble (laughs) remembering which book is which. (laughs) <laughs> in his music where dead people are hooked up during half-life and you can talk to them on the phone. Mm. Right. Yeah, I haven't, haven't read Ubik, but I've heard about it. Well, in Ubik, you never know for sure who died and who survived. 
it begins with an explosion. And these psychic employees of Glenn Runciter uh, take Glenn Runciter's dead body back to Earth to be put in cold pack because he died and they survived. But as events unfold, they begin to suspect that it's the other way around, that Runciter survived and they're all dead. And the book never resolves that question. Hmm. Wow. Now, did did Phil think that he communicated with people that had died at any point? Or? Well, of course, there's Thomas. Right. So he believed in past lives. Yeah, there's more. Sometimes he thought he was being lectured by uh, philosophers like Erasmus and... Um, why do I blank? The guy who wrote The New Atlantis. Uh, oh, I can yeah. get that. Yeah, oh, I have, have to look it up. <laughs> uh, computer's frozen again. Anyway, I do. Okay. I, I, he's real famous. <laughs> um, Elizabethan times, I think. Was it The New Atlantis? Yeah. Oh, uh, let's see. So Francis Bacon. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So he felt like he was getting lectures from from Sir Francis Bacon and Erasmus. Yeah, and um uh, de Notre Dame, Nostradamus. Yep. And of course he spoke French, so <laughs> right. Um, actually, he was talking to Phil in French, and Phil kept saying, "I don't understand you." <laughs> oh wow! Now was this while you were with him, or? Well, yeah, I didn't uh, actually experience that myself, but Phil told me about it. It was. Uh, it was the middle of the day. He was lying down and meditating, but not really asleep. Okay. And he came to believe that these were all really one entity disguising itself as different personalities that would be familiar to Phil. Oh. Even though he dropped out of college, he continued to educate himself just practically lived at the library reading books. Yep. Yep. Often shows up in the way he knows things, but he can't pronounce them correctly because he never heard the words spoken. <laughs> sure. So, so how do you think he would have reacted to the movie The Matrix? Like, do you think he would have liked it? Oh, I think he would have loved it, and he would have sued them. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's great. His agent didn't think we could win. Okay. In yeah. state. But I still wonder. Hmm. Because I think so a little I... nudge from, from the family trust might have... Uh, caused them to 
come up with a payoff. Right. Yeah, you know, I was reading about the Adjustment Bureau and that whole, there was a lawsuit, I guess it got settled eventually, about his. Yeah, I'm out of the loop on that, but I do know that there's a uh, part of the settlement is they can't talk about it. Basically, uh, Russ Galen failed to renew a number of copyrights. So, right. Been, that's why you'll find so many of Bill's books that are and mostly short stories that you can read online for free because the copyrights have expired. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of like living in a matrix. When you get into the copyright law, it's so many areas are just plain murky. Yeah. Well, getting back to the, the idea of the Matrix more more than the movie, I mean, what would you think he would is sort of Phil's best argument that we are living in in some kind of a Matrix? I think he would find it in the little things, not the major events. But when something in your life doesn't seem quite right, like maybe you get a carton of milk out of your refrigerator and you just bought it, but it's already gone sour. Mm. Maybe the grocery store didn't keep it cold enough or maybe there's been some kind of glitch in time yeah. Yeah. Like a glitch in the matrix, right? Right. I think the matrix is exactly what Phil was trying to describe. Okay. Is the best um, his best description of it is it in that that mess speech, you think, or is it in his exegesis? In his, uh, how do you pronounce the, uh, the exegesis? His story was the adjustment team. Yep. The dog forgot to bark and it all went downhill from there. Right, yeah, the main character ended up in the office when it was being adjusted, right? Right. And it, it, just a matter of moving around the furniture and replacing the lights, but he isn't supposed to know about it. <laughs> so you think uh -huh. that's, that's his best kind of representation of that idea, is, is the adjustment team? Yeah, I think so. That something is rearranging our world when we're not, not looking. And, uh, sorry, I'm just going to shut down the computer. Okay. There. And I have my desktop open. The desktop, I'm glad it still works because I cannot even watch YouTube or a Facebook clip on the laptop. It 
Oh, wow, it must be an old laptop then. Yeah. If it's, it makes this horrible noise. It freezes up and makes this horrible grinding noise. And with a laptop, you can't just unplug it. It has a battery, so I have to just sit on the power button until it shuts down. Right. It, it's. I'm sure it's the video card that's the problem, but nothing. It isn't worth fixing. And this is my second one. They last about a year. Oh, okay. $110, but I got free shipping. <laughs> oh. Well, just finishing up on the, the, you know, on the matrix idea. So the adjustment piece. So Phil, you're saying would say something is rearranging our world when we're not looking. Yeah. Usually, usually in small ways. But it sounds like also he believes in big ways too, such as trying to prevent the JFK assassination or the Nazis winning the. Yeah. yeah. And that, of course, is the empire uh, impinging on our world where the empire, well, Rome just kind of fell apart. Nobody defeated them. They just reached out too far and couldn't uh, maintain things like supply lines and communication. And, of course, they never conquered the Scots. That's why they built a couple of walls was to keep the Scottish out. <laughs> <laughs> right, Hadrian's Wall, right? In yeah, and there was another wall, but I forget who built it. Anyway, um, yeah, the thing is, He did believe there was a savior, a walker on Earth, and that, of course, would be, oh, what's his name in the Matrix? Neo. <laughs> Neo, that's it. Yeah. But, of course, in the movie, he resorts to beating people up. <laughs> right. Yeah. But did Phil believe that we could wake up from this Matrix-like reality and see what was beyond it? At least in small parts, you know, uh, not quite as dramatically as Neo broke through, but that we could learn that we're all sleeping and reality is going on all around us, but we don't see it. All we see is the dream that we're trapped in. Yep. That sounds a lot like the some of the Buddhist... Uh you know, ideas about dream yoga where you learn to lucid dream to wake up in the dream so you can realize that the world around us is a dream. Yeah, he did uh, for a time study Buddhism. So I'm sure he was aware of that. Yeah. And, and of, the course, of Maya. he used the I Ching and he was aware that the I Ching is a kind of computer. The hexagrams are like the on-off switches in a digital computer. And, mm. and of course, back then, computers were not a big part of our lives. In fact, some of the major banks were just getting computerized. 
so that instead of mailing back all your canceled checks after they uh, put them through their machine, my brother had a job doing that. During, overnight, while the bank was closed, they'd go through all the checks that had come in and enter them into a terminal and um, someone would physically take that terminal downtown and enter it into the central computer. Nowadays, every bank can just enter the computer, the um, amount and date and so forth of your check and send it over the internet to downtown. <laughs> right, yeah, they can send digital images. So, you know, that's yeah, my background is, as a computer programmer. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when yeah. I make my house payment, they don't even send in the physical check to cash it. They just send a little computer message to the bank. <laughs> right, they're just moving bits around, right? So, yeah. so on the e-chain, did he did he use that very much? A lot. He said that he used it to plot the man in the high castle. Whenever there was a choice, a decision to be made, he would ask the E-Ching, what will Juliana do now? Will she go with him or will she stay alone? And things like that, he'd ask the E-Ching. Wow, and that's what, in the book, Robinson was doing that, right? Right. The grasshopper is heavy, right? His Japanese translator was up in arms about oh, yeah. that. Yi Ching is Chinese. Japanese would never use a Chinese oral. Yep. <laughs> but after that book was published in Japan, the Japanese started using the Yi Ching. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. interesting. I didn't know that. Wow. And did you ever use the Ching yourself? Oh, here and there, not obsessively the way Phil did. So but he, he finally felt... concluded that the Ching was evil. It was giving oh, really? He was asking it questions, and it was giving him answers that made no sense. So he finally asked it, "Are you the devil?" And according to Phil, it said yes. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Sorry. Huh. <laughs> so he stopped did he stop using it at that point? Or? Well he said he did. He kept <laughs> the book. Yeah. Anyway, um thing is he really didn't like the idea of um channeling or, or mediums. His favorite aunt Marion was a trans uh, channeler, a medium, and huh. he, he died because when she had a stroke, her family didn't know it. They thought she was just in one of her trances, so she, oh. that delayed her getting to the hospital. She might have died anyway, but she might have right. lived if they'd gotten her there sooner. Mm. Wow. And then... Believed in trans-channeling, you just didn't like it. Right. Oh, it's real, but you don't know what you're contacting. Yeah. He um, he and Nancy attended two 
that I know of of Bishop Pike's attempt to contact his dead son through a medium. Yep. And Phil said, yes, the medium did contact something, but it was not Pike's son. Mm. There, there are some nasty critters in that realm. Yeah. And where do you believe that realm was? Was it like an astral plane? Was it uh, heaven and hell? I guess that would fit in with his theory of orthogonal time. Orthogonal is basically a fancy term for uh, perpendicular Mm -hmm. at a right angle. That's how God can see all of history. He's above this huge film strip looking at all the frames. Not really in another dimension. You can't be in one dimension unless you're a point. But moving in a direction that we can't see. You know, a a fifth dimension beyond height, weight, height, weight, height, width, depth, and time. There's another direction in which God can travel, but we can't because we can't see it any more than the little square in Flatland can see the sphere except where it impinges on his flat plane. So he sees first a dot and then a circle and bigger and bigger circles and smaller and smaller circles as the sphere drops down below his plane of vision until he sees just a dot and then poof, the sphere is gone. But it isn't really gone. It's either right above him or right below him. We just can't see or move in that direction. The the things that are moving in that direction still have four or five dimensions to them. You know, they, they aren't in that dimension. They're just moving in a vector that we can't comprehend. Yep. And is that what he felt like? he was doing when he perceived some of these other figures? Well, he thought maybe um, a spiritual being was showing him that, that he wasn't actually there, but he was being shown a great secret that, and I guess it isn't all that secret, that time and space are in some sense illusions. Yep. That my three-year-old self still exists, but I can't see her, talk to her, or hold hands with her because I can't move backwards in time. But if I could go in this other direction and move above the film strip and drop myself down into that frame, then then. Theoretically, we could see each other and interact, and Phil did experience that. I think he was about seven or eight years old. He was at a uh, day camp with a group of children and some uh, counselors, adult counselors, 
And he ran off into the woods and got lost. And I'll come back to why he ran off. But he was lost and couldn't find his way back. And an adult man took his hand and walked him back. And when his little boy, Phil, turned to say thank you, poof, the man was gone. And he thought maybe that was his adult self helping him. Now, the reason he ran off was that it was a sort of Halloween thing, but during the day, and they had a bonfire going, and one of the boys' costumes caught on fire. Oh, wow. And and Phil witnessed that, and that's why he ran away. He couldn't watch. I see. And he thought it was his adult self. Yeah. And then there was the time when Phil and Nancy were asleep in bed. And Phil woke up because Nancy was screaming. There was a man standing at the foot of their bed. And when Phil woke up and saw him, that man disappeared. And Phil thought that was another instance of himself just keeping an eye on himself. Okay, so he thought it was him from the future in that case? Yeah. Years later, Phil had a dream in which he was the man looking down at the two of them in bed. Oh, really? Okay. There it is. Now that closes the loop, right? And even weirder, my son, as a teenager, told me that he dreamed that he was... um, with his father, and they were talking, and after a while, his father said, now, go play, and his father was gone. And that that was a dream, but years earlier, when Christopher was an infant, Phil said he dreamed that he met our son as, as a teenager. Oh, wow. In a dream? Yeah. Dream for Phil. Okay. And well, I, he never, was I never dreams. said a word about it to Christopher. Okay. And yet Christopher had that dream. When when Christopher was a teenager. Right. Yeah. So it's like these two points in time being linked together through the dream state. That's, uh-huh. that's intriguing. Yep. Yeah. That's great. Many philosophers wonder if our real life is when we're dreaming and our waking life is actually the dream. Yeah, a lot of Native American traditions you know, believe that as well. and It kind of ties to this idea of uh, the reality being like a simulation. If you can forward or jump to different points, it's like playing a movie. You can, If you're outside of it, you can fast forward and connect with what's going on. Maybe tying back to his idea of orthogonal time. Yeah. He wasn't alone in that description of time as orthogonal. Yeah. Makes sense. And more recently, I I don't know how new it is, but I just came across it. It's the idea that the universe or time does have a beginning. 
and that at the moment of the Big Bang, time began in both directions. So we can't find the beginning because one timeline is going backwards relative to the other. Hmm. That would, um, let's see, no, it isn't Now Wait for Last Year, it's the other book. One of Bill's books has people living backwards. They rise from the grave and get younger and younger, and they, instead of eating, they, uh, food comes out of their mouths. Still had to be very delicate about how they eat and what they eat. <laughs> it was going backwards. Hey, yeah. Uh, I don't remember the title of that novel. Was it a short story or a novel? N- novel. Okay. Oh. Founder Clock World. Okay. Founder Clock? Counter. Oh, Counter Clock. T-O-U-N-T-E-R. Yep. Okay. Great. Well, that's useful. Well, uh, I think we're uh, sort of out of the time that I had allocated, but uh, uh, this has been very helpful, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, um, I hope it's been helpful, and look forward yeah. to seeing your book. Yeah. All right. Good All right. Yep. Bye for now. Bye.